Welcome to this episode of Life After Cardiac Arrest podcast with me, your host, Paul Swindell. And today I'm joined by Dr. Thomas Keeble, consultant cardiologist at Southend Hospital, the Essex Cardiothoracic Centre and uh, the Anglia Ruskin University, where he conducts a lot of research. Welcome, Tom. Thank you. Thank you for the invite. Could I ask you first, what got you into cardiology? Absolutely. So I think the first thing is you know, clinical medicine is a wonderful thing. Dealing with patients, taking histories, using investigations, examining patients and coming to diagnoses that you can then treat is, is a great part of just medicine in general. But then when you have cardiology, you have so many tools that can guide you and help you through that diagnostic process. But not only that, we've not just got the tools to make the diagnosis, we've then got the tools and the therapies to deliver to make the patient better. And I think that is a remarkably exciting and novel position to be in where you take a patient who's unwell, maybe with a heart attack and a blocked artery or a cardiac arrest, whichever you like, and you do a number of investigations there and then right in front of you, whether it be an ultrasound, an angiogram, a CT head, whatever you want to do that you think is clinically driven, you examine the patients, you come to a conclusion of what you think is going on and how you can make them better, and then you deliver that therapy yourself as well or with the help of a, a big team at the cardiac centre to make these patients better. So I think cardiology has all of those facets, and I think that's what really, really uh, excites me about cardiology. And we're also a very, very novel and evolving speciality. I know most of medicine is evolving quite rapidly, but cardiology in particular is incredibly evol in evolution at the moment with loads of new technologies. And it's also very, very data-driven, so it's a great area to do research because people want data, want randomised controlled trial, and want to know what the best thing for each particular patient groups are. And cardiologists are very good at delivering large randomised trials to show benefit to patients about the most novel treatment. So I think it really is a, a very exciting speciality to be in at the moment. You're working at two different hospitals and you're into this research at the Anglia Ruskin University. How, how did you manage to get that set up? Because it sounds quite a, a perfect role, really, having a, a lot of interesting angles. Yeah, no, I think I'm very, very lucky. It's an incredibly privileged role to have where I have patients that I treat at South End in a sort of, if you like, district general hospital type setting. We need to be good at treating all patients with all types of general cardiology problems. I then have the privilege of being at the cardiac centre doing the more advanced and tertiary centre level stuff, so the, the stenting and the heart attacks and the cardiac arrest treatment of patients in an expert centre. And then again, I've been remarkably lucky with Anglia Ruskin who have supported me to do research essentially two days a week in amongst that cl busy clinical commitment so that you can merge busy clinical uh, doctors with research and, and as you know we've now got a team at the cardiac center which is where pretty much most of the research is done in Essex at the cardiac center we've got a team that can deliver that 24 hours a day seven days a week with a variety of uh, research nurses research fellows and just a, a really incredible team to, to push things along there and really do some really exciting research so we're we're very lucky I think uh, I've known you now probably for about three years or so and I think probably it was because of your research that we actually came in contact with each other. Can you um, explain me how, how we got to that point from your point of view? Yeah, absolutely. So I think the other thing in medicine which I think is really, really important is as doctors, we have got to understand unmet clinical need. And what that means, it sounds a bit of a terminology, but it basically means what areas of medicine are we not delivering a really good treatment for or follow-up for or there was areas that we're really under, um, undervaluing where we are and what we're doing and we need to do better. And 
I think cardiac arrest and the follow-up of cardiac arrest is one of the biggest unmet clinical needs that I've seen ever. Uh, because there just isn't a pathway to support patients who have had cardiac arrest and all of the consequences that come with that. And I did a trial, uh, this was in 2013-14, where we were looking at different cooling mechanisms to try and protect patients from brain injury uh, from cardiac arrest. And at that moment in time, I was purely interested in a way at that time, just in does this cooling therapy benefit patients compared to this cooling therapy? It was a very science-driven, outcome-driven, what's better than one better than another? Is it or isn't it? Is one quicker than the other? Isn't it or isn't it? But what I ended up doing was following up all these patients sequentially, and I'd never done that before, and very few people had ever done that before. And by me seeing each patient time after time, and I, in total there was about 78 patients over an 18-month period, um, I realised that many of these patients from cardiac arrest and their families were going through the same turmoil, the same difficulties, the same challenges. And when you see the first five patients that all come to you with all of the same problems, you realise that actually you're, you know, the current uh, level of service that, that we are providing fell, was falling woefully short. And therefore, we needed to live, deliver something better. And it was very simple and very obvious. You say that the patients with similar uh, problems, were yes. they cardiac related problems? So predominantly not, no. That was another thing which, you know, as a cardiologist and most of my cardiology colleagues, when they see patients with cardiac arrest in their follow-up clinic, be them in Southend or in the cardiac center or in the district general, doesn't really matter. The cardiologist as a rule of thumb is most interested in the cardiac side of things. Is their stent working okay? Have they got any chest pain? Is their breathing all right? Are their tablets good? Are there any side effects from the tablets? It's a, a very sort of standard consult, as you, most patients are probably aware. But actually what became very clear was that those weren't the problems that the patients were describing. The patients were describing that they didn't have the memory that they used to, that they were so much more exhausted than they were before, that they'd lost their job, that they financially were in difficulties, that their mortgage should be coming to arrears. So all of these new challenges, which most patients who had either just had a heart attack or had another cardiac problem, never came to clinic and talked about. They came with a whole new set of issues, completely understandable issues, but ones that our current follow-up just didn't address in any detail and just glossed over. And I think not only that, but the degree of support these patients got, be it from rehab, whether they were uh, eligible or not, be it from their general practitioner, be it, and a general understanding of what they were going through was woefully inadequate. And I think that, as I say, and I've, I think many of you have heard me talk about this, the first three to five patients I saw in this follow-up clinic all had absolutely identical problems, came in emotionally very labile, understandably with, uh, family and wives and, and partners who were in absolute distress and turmoil because of what had happened to their loved one and completely understandable. But I just had never seen that degree of challenging, sort of challenging circumstances in any other group of cardiology patients in all the time I'd been practicing. So it really did take me back. And then when I reflected on that, uh, after you know three to five patients, it made me think, hang about, this is just truly awful. We are not doing these patients a really good service here. We have to change things. I don't think it needs to change. I think we can do very simple things to help address a lot of these, these problems, but we had to do something different. And so in 2014, after discovering this over the, the sort of previous six, 12 months, 
we uh, there was a group uh, in uh, a Dutch group um, or in Maastricht, uh, Veronique Malert, who had done a study and she'd taken just over a hundred patients and randomised them to a, a rehab type nurse looking after their psychological issues in a fairly robust manner in the early follow-up period after a cardiac arrest and randomised the other group to standard care, which was what we had at that time, which wasn't an awful lot. People were just going home sort of feeling lucky to be alive, but there wasn't much psychological or other support for them. And she showed that if you followed these patients up in a more organised manner, with a nurse that really understood the problems and the faces and the challenges, and not only that, but could point them in the right direction of support groups, counsellors, help to try and make their early life outside of hospital better, then you can imagine, uh, as you might expect, they got better more quickly. They went back to work more quickly. They achieved happier and better quality of life questionnaires more quickly. And all of these things, of course, the sooner we can get back to a decent quality of life, that's what we're all trying to achieve in medicine, no matter what speciality we're in. And so we uh, worked with Veronique's group and we didn't want to reinvent the wheel, so we just copied what she was doing. And we made then some minor tweaks to reflect what uh, what sort of services we could deliver in our centre. Uh, and we got off and basically delivered the care, uh, the care study or the care package as we now know it. And originally what that was was me doing follow-up uh, with an intensive care nurse who understood the challenges of patients post-cardiac arrest. But we also had support for the first year from a psychiatrist because we were very concerned that uh, both me and my nursing colleague may see a patient who had really quite challenging uh, uh, psychological issues that maybe we would identify, but then we wouldn't have the skill sets to make a formal diagnosis and treatment plan. And we were very worried because we appreciated that there is significant psychological issues in patients and their families following cardiac arrest, we did not want to feel inadequate and not be able to treat these patients properly. And so we had a, an amazing psychiatrist who supported us through the first 12 to 18 months, sitting with us for all patients and families, which was truly amazing. So I think in summary, I think that the cardiac arrest patient and family is still a huge unmet need. I think we look after patients remarkably well in general in hospital settings. I think we do all the things that we can do to try and make patients better. But I think that in a lot of settings across the UK, when the patient and families go home, I think they often don't know quite where to turn and have huge amounts of questions about how they get back to normal life, a high quality of life. But I think that we really uh, currently, as a rule in the UK, let these patients down. And that's what I, with your group and with others, are trying to improve so that there is a standard of care across the UK that all cardiac arrest survivors and their families can expect and, and be delivered locally to every patient in the UK. Why do you think that there isn't that care package there at the moment across the country? I think it's a very good point because I think that uh, you know, the two components to uh, cardiac arrest survivorship, if you will, the two major components are sort of the heart side, so to speak. And I would say as a cardiologist, that's relatively straightforward and there's lots of evidence for most of the things that we do. And then there's the neurological forward slash psychological side. And I think that is a far more challenging sort of area of which with all due respects, the cardiologist per se doesn't really have an awful lot of expertise in, which is why people like Veronique who are cardiac uh, rehabilitation doctors or medical rehabilitation doctors 
have an expert uh, take on this because they uh, they don't care on the mechanism of the brain injury. So if you look in the UK, we're incredibly good at rehabilitating brain injured patients from trauma, from stroke, uh, and from actually any other type of brain injury mechanism. We're particularly bad, and there is no pathways in place, for rehabilitating patients with brain injury followed by anoxia and cardiac arrest. So no blood supply for a number of minutes while CPR was not being done or while waiting for a, a circulation to be recovered. And we need, I don't understand quite why that is, if I'm absolutely honest. All I would say maybe is that stroke is uh, probably has more patients across the UK, so it becomes a more obvious problem. And as you know, cardiac arrest survivorship is an increasing number of patients, but at the same time, historically, maybe a decade ago, was actually relatively small. And many of the patients, unfortunately, perished and died because we didn't have the degree of CPR, the degree of defibrillators in the community, the degree of education and support. And the trend now is for these patients to go to a cardiac centre, which gives them the best possible chance of a good survival and a good outcome, both from a heart perspective and from a brain perspective. So I think we're just paying catch up with the numbers a little bit. And I think that as I and more of my colleagues see more and more survivors of cardiac arrest, uh, we hope most with a fantastic outcome, some will have some injury that requires rehabilitation. As we see more and more of those patients, then I think that's where we've got to make better rehabilitation and psychological support networks and pathways to facilitate full uh, recovery and, uh, and patients getting to a really good quality of life. It may not be the exact level of quality of life they had before their cardiac arrest because as, as you've heard me say a number of times, life is never the same after cardiac arrest. Life may be different, it may be better in some cases, it may be worse in some cases, but the bottom line is it's usually different and you also have the psychological aspects of having to deal with that. And that's a, a huge thing to have to deal with for most people. And that's very, very normal. Do, do, how do we control, or how do cardiac arrest uh, survivors and their families contrast to, say, a heart attack survivor? I think that, uh, I mean, I think the first thing to say is that survivors of any type of illness, be it cancer, be it heart attack, be it cardiac arrest, they're not we would call them uh, heterogeneous, very variable, very different. So some people uh, who have had a heart attack, they want to have a cup of tea and go home within two hours and we fix them very quickly. As you know, people will come in with terrible chest pain, they'll be fixed usually with a stent within maybe an hour and they'll be sitting on the wall with a cup of tea in their hand and a bit of toast within an hour and a half and wonder what all the fuss is about and then want to go home often the same evening. And we know that you know, there's a lot of rehabilitation, there's a lot of education, there's a lot of risk factor modification, getting the medicines right. And heart attacks do, do come with a, a very real mortality associated with them, an in-hospital mortality of around 5%, and mortality at one year of around 12%. So you know, very, but a lot of people don't quite understand that. So heart attack patients often tend to brush off the diagnosis and yes, I've been fixed now and everything's okay. And we see that quite a lot. And you can imagine those patients are quite challenging to rehabilitate and to educate because they're often in denial and that the smoking wasn't the cause and that you know, they can just carry on with their life as they were. So 
we don't tend to see that group of patients in cardiac arrest survivors, if I'm honest. So if a cardiac arrest patient comes in and survives well with good neurological outcome, we don't tend to see those patients brushing it off, to be perfectly frank, because I think there is so much more to the whole process. And I think your question is a very, very interesting one. And the true honest answer is, is that we don't know, if you like, the neuropsychological differences between just a heart attack, inverted commas, and a cardiac arrest, be it from a heart attack or be it from another cause, a cardiomyopathy or other unknown uh, disorders. But we're going to have some information on that in the next couple of years, actually. So we're taking a study, it's, it's not our own study, but part of the TTM2 trial out of the Lund uh, Cardiac Arrest Centre. TTM, what's that mean? Yes, sorry. So TTM is Targeted Temperature Management Trial. It's a trial uh, from Sweden across the whole of the world in about 50 centres, and we're one of the biggest centres in the UK. Uh, it's looking at whether cooling a patient down after a cardiac arrest to 33 degrees, which some people believe would make benefit to the amount of brain injury and potentially to the recovery, whether there's any difference between that and just not letting people have a fever. So letting them go up to 37.8 but no higher. And looking that the broadest and the simplest way of looking at them is taking two and a half thousand patients, randomizing them, uh, half of them to a cooled temperature and half of them to a normal temperature and looking at the outcomes and the hardest outcome we can look at is mortality. And so the hardest outcome we're looking for is a difference in mortality at six months. And it's powered to see if there is a difference of 10% between the two groups. But over and above doing that, which is important, it has a very, very uh, aggressive follow-up plan where people are being followed up a number of months and years to check on their well-being looking at their cognition, looking at their overall health and well-being, and we're going to get a wealth of information with regards to that. Not only that, we're doing a sub-study on the neuropsychological aspects to this survivorship of cardiac arrest, and we're comparing that to patients who have had a simple, if you like, heart attack, and seeing what the differences, if any, there are. In my view, there has to be differences, because I think that what cardiac arrest survivors have been through, even if the underlying problem has been a heart attack what the two groups go through with all of the other aspects is very very different and so uh, i think we need to understand those differences better so that we can bespoke the care for both patient groups to make care better in the long term what what sort of uh, other numbers that you deal with in the ctc regarding cardiac arrest and say uh, heart attacks as well yeah, so the Cardiac Centre in Essex is a big centre, covers a population of nearly 2 million uh, people, uh, treats patients all the way up to pretty much Ipswich, uh, out to London at the, at the west, and as I say, it's a, it's a very large area, uh, and heart attacks and, and cardiac arrest tend to not go to too many other places because we are the only centre that deals with, with this in Essex. Um, we deal with about 750 heart attacks, and what I mean by that heart attack is a number, the number of patients that have a blocked artery that blocks immediately and then needs to be unblocked quickly. And 750 makes us about the fourth biggest heart attack centre in the UK. Um, cardiac arrest-wise, we deal with about 130 patients per year. And what I mean by cardiac arrest, as a number of you will understand, is that the heart has stopped for whatever reason. Uh, the patient generally then requires uh, chest compressions and CPR. And then if they're in a particular rhythm, obviously require defibrillation as quickly as possible. 
Those patients uh, generally are different because they then become comatose and unconscious. And so at the scene of the cardiac arrest, more often than not will require uh, a tube to be put down and be put to sleep by the attending paramedic or doctors. And so those patients will then come to us already in a, a drug-induced coma that we will drug them to, to make them into a coma so that they're asleep and comfortable so that we can get on with any procedures that we require to make the patient better, but in a very safe uh, environment. And generally then, cardiac arrest patients will stay asleep for around about one to two days while we just let everything settle down. Uh, we may choose to cool their body down to try and protect their kidneys and brain and heart as well from further damage. That's on, uh, ongoing research. Uh, and then, as you know, we generally wake patients up or try to wake them up after about 48 hours once they're back to a normal temperature. Now, if we contrast that with a standard heart attack patient, which we see obviously more of, patients are generally conscious. They can generally tell you that they've had some chest pain and what problems they've had over the last few either days or hours. Uh, they can take tablets. Uh, they don't need an anaesthetist to put them to sleep. So generally, there's, they're, they're less labor intensive and less need for intensive care specialists. And we can generally deal with them as cardiologists with our specialist team in the, in the cardiac center in the cath lab and open their arteries up, usually within about, let's say, 20 to 30 minutes is a pretty standard, standard case. So I think that cardiac arrest patients just have just another layer of complexity which uh, even acutely, so acutely and also when we wake them up and then obviously longer term with all the things that we've talked about, uh, just a, a, other layers of complexities compared to, if you like, good old fashioned heart attack patients, which we see a lot of. You mentioned about the, the calling there, but not everyone goes into calling and do all centres do calling? So um, the guidelines are what is called uh, temperature management. So there is very little argument that uh, if you have a fever in the first 48 to 72 hours after a cardiac arrest, that makes any brain injury worse. That is bad. So fever is definitely the enemy of brain injury. And so, uh, but at the same time, at the moment, we don't know that cooling makes it better. And the whole point currently of the current ongoing temperature management trial is to say, is cooling better than just preventing a fever because it's accepted that fever is bad. And the honest answer is, is that we don't know. And I think that we may or may not, uh, we will find out more evidence from this current trial, but it may not give us the absolute truest answer. And the reason why that is, is that the way in which patients present in cardiac arrest is very heterogeneous, is very variable. Some patients will not have had a heartbeat for 60 seconds and then they get a heartbeat back quite quickly if they get shocked very quickly. And they're going into the same trial as a patient who may have not had a heartbeat for one hour. You know, so it's very difficult to compare those two groups of patients because the patients who's only not had a heartbeat for 60 seconds will inevitably do much better than the poor patient who hasn't got a heartbeat for 60 minutes. It's just that's the nature of, 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 of medicine, if it makes sense. So, and if the, if, you know, and this should uh, be lost, if you like, in a large trial because they should be randomly assigned to both arms of the study equally. But at the same time, there's a lot of variability in the presentation of cardiac arrest patients to hospital. And I think that, that's what makes clinical trial in this patient group quite challenging, I would say. Not only that, of course, but if you're going to study patients who are unconscious, 
you have to have, of course, the ethical permission to be able to put them into trials without them consenting. You have to have quite challenging conversations with family members about, we have put your loved one into a study uh, and would he or she be happy with that? They can be difficult conversations when you're just telling them that they've just you know, died, been resuscitated and they're you know, in a very critical condition to then ask them for permission to be in a study. It's quite a difficult conversation to have and takes a little bit of an art to get the hang of that, so to speak, and doing it in a really you know, responsible way because it's really important that family members have their say in the role and the treatment of their, of their loved one. That's really important. You mentioned on about family members. What what is it you do say to family members when they first come into the hospital and see their partners or father or whatever yeah. in that state? And what what is the how do you go about giving what the prognosis is? Well, I think that when it's just happened, i.e., we usually speak to them. I usually speak to them within the first two to three hours. As soon as I finish the case, I'll go speak to the family. That's the most important thing to do. I think it's important that you don't have too many people, but you have enough people. I think we have to appreciate that most family members won't take an awful lot in because it's so much of a shock to the system. And so we need to ensure that we give them other access to other pieces of information. And that's why I think, as you know, we've we've made a video so that I can just point them at, we, we give them all an information sheet now, which has a one page simple overview of what's happened and what the, what the challenges are ahead. It labels our video, www dot lifeaftercardiacarrest.com which is a video specifically aimed at the first 24 hours showing the family what the challenges are that patients can expect sorry family members and patients can expect over the next few days and weeks and people have found that remarkably helpful uh, the other key thing is to be very consistent with the family members so that if I say one thing, the anaesthetist has got to say the same thing, the nurse at the end of the bed's got to say the same thing. And so we've got because we see so many patients like this, we've got very good at just saying the same thing, if that makes sense. And that's really important because patients hold on to the good bits and try and forget the bad bits. So if I say, I'm really sorry, I think you know we're going to really struggle to bring your relative through, but the anaesthetist comes three hours later and says, oh, they're doing all right, they're looking much better. That can be a really difficult one to square because, the, of course, the family will always want the best possible outcome. And it's not that I've... Yeah, we need to say the same things because otherwise patients get and uh, families get difficult information and it's really important. So going back to your question, what do I say to families in the immediate aftermath of their loved one having a cardiac arrest? I say to them very honestly, uh, your loved one's chance of survival at home was 8%. We know that. It's bad. By the time the patient gets to our institution, we know that the chance of a good outcome survival goes up to 50%. So just by coming to our hospital or the patient being able to be alive to come to our hospital because of the treatment they've received at home increases their survival by about six or seven fold to, an, you know, to 50%. And I never ever go above 50%. And I think if you're very honest to the patient's family and say, look, you know, I'm afraid I can't give you better odds than 50%. 50% is the right number. 50% of patients, unfortunately, will succumb to the injury, whether it's the heart just can't keep up and will struggle, the other organs will give up and struggle, whether it be the kidneys or others, uh, and or, unfortunately, the brain just may be too damaged to continue in a useful way. And they're, they're what I, that's what I say to patients. And it's not a nice conversation, it's a challenging conversation, but most families are very appreciative of honesty. 
because they know they've been up against it. They know their loved one has clinically been dead and has been resuscitated successfully and has made it into your institution. And so they don't want the wool being pulled over their eyes. They don't want to uh, sort of, uh, they want to know they're gonna do okay, but none of us can say that. And so we just have to be very honest, very calm and very supportive. And I always reassure them too, that in a cardiac center, their chance of survival is the best it can possibly be because we've done everything we can and we're good at treating patients with cardiac arrest. And that's what you need to know, that if there is a place they can survive and do well, it's in our institution or in whichever cardiac center the patients are brought to. And that's the key thing because they have to have confidence in the treating team that everything's being done. And sometimes, even when everything is done, patients don't survive. That is life. We, we, we're not miracle workers. We're just... We have tools that we can use and techniques that we can use to minimise things and improve things and make blood supply better and try and do the best that we can. But we can only do at the moment within the confines of the technologies we have available to us. So I think consistency with the patient and family, more information and education in the form of a leaflet and in the form of a video so that because they don't remember too much of what you say often in the first half an hour because they've just got so much going around in their head and so much shock and turmoil. Uh, and it's good for when they go home that they can just take in a bit more information in their own room and then they can come back with more questions. And finally, they need to have consistency from all of the treating team members because it's inconsistencies that make life much more challenging for the family, but also for the treating team if Dr X says one thing and Dr Y says another. We've got to all sing from the same song sheet to be fair to the patient and to the families. What, tool, what are these tools that you're talking about that you can use to actually establish what the likely outcome is going to be and how, how accurate are you going to be with those current yeah. tools and where are they going in the future? Yeah, so the, the tools are getting better and better, like most things in medicine. Um, I think the best tool is if the patient just wakes up. So we always try and wake patients up at around 42 hours. So by the time they've been asleep, been temperature managed for 24 hours, then been rewarmed to normal temperature, that usually takes around 42 hours. And at 42 hours, we will usually switch sedation off and we will see what happens. If patients wake up generally quite quickly, that is a good sign that their brain function is gonna be, if you like, globally okay, because they've got, their brain's not been damaged so much that their consciousness is impaired. So if they wake up, ask to take the, the tube out of their, out of their throat and, and start looking at you and following and saying, I'm okay, thanks, I'm all right. That's a great sign, that's the best sign. So I think with those patients, they don't need any more tests at that moment in time. They just need the tube to be taken out if all things other are even and equal. And then they can generally be stepped down to a less intensive care type environment, which is great news for everybody. The ones that pose many more challenges, I think, are those that maybe when you've tried to do that, either have some fitting, uh, have epilepsy type fits, uh, or they just don't wake up. They sort of, they just won't open their eyes, won't do anything following commands or anything that's, if you like, purposeful. And that's much more challenging because you think, okay, well, is the brain more damaged that it can't do what we want it to do and it can't wake up and it can't breathe for itself and it can't follow instructions like we want it to. Sometimes it's because of drugs we've given. So drugs can hang around for days sometimes, particularly opiates and anaesthetic agents. They can hang around for many days. So the last thing we want to do is make decisions on someone who is just being sedated too much. Um, so we have to be very careful of that. So we have to make sure all the drugs are off and then make a clinical assessment. And there is 
huge validity in examining the patient clinically, neurologically, if you will, what their reflexes are like in particular, what their movements are like, and yeah, what their conscious level is like. And we have all measures of scales of that that can determine how people are gonna do. Now, of course, the longer people don't wake up, generally the worse. Doesn't mean it's impossible, but if you haven't woken up at 10 days, we know you're gonna be up against it because you just are, because the brain injury will be more significant. There's, there's no two ways about it because it's been injured enough not to be able to wake up at 10 days when you would hope that some of the swelling may have gone down and that everything would have settled down a bit. So when we get to 10 days, or I would say between three to 10 days to be fair, we've got some important decisions to, to make. And those decisions are, is the brain so uh, irreparably damaged that it's just too much damage that we is not compatible with a with a, a surviving life if that makes sense and this happens rarely I would say but it does happen but we have to be very sure that that is the case because we can't go withdrawing treatment on patients potentially that could make a good recovery and we just got it wrong we've got to minimize that chance happening to as close to zero as is possible because we want to make people better who can be made better and the ones that can't then of course there's nothing we can do for those and so we need to stop not that many i would say not enough centers in the uk have all of the tools in the toolbox to help make those decisions so again, this is another thing that needs, I think, investment and potentially skills and better, better delivery of what we call neuroprognostication. What that means is delivering the tools to help make the decisions about the degree of brain injury and the likelihood of a good surviving outcome or not. And those tests include an EEG, which is where you put electrodes on the outside of the skull. They're just like little sticky electrodes. And you measure the electrical activity of the brain. And that gives you a lot of information about the brain activity that can help you decide what it's doing. Is it having fits or is it just uh, working normally or what's it doing? We also do another thing called SSEP, which is basically stimulating somewhere in the arm and making sure that the other side of the brain picks that up because it should. That's another very, very good test. Um, there are scans of the head we often do ct scans of the head to see does the brain look normal on a ct now if it is normal doesn't mean everything's going to be fine but it's better than having lots and lots of diffuse looking damage which is usually a much worse sign the clinical examination is always really important in terms of how we examine the patient and we also often ask neurologists to come and help us uh, and then finally, there's blood tests that we can do to measure brain damage, actually. And this is, a, again, a relatively new field. Uh, and we've just got into this in terms of if you have loads of markers released from dead brain cells, the, 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 the damage to the brain has to be higher than if you haven't got much brain tissue released into the bloodstream. Um, and so that's helping us too. So I think the bottom line is, is that the, the tools we are, we're, we're developing are getting better. I would suggest to you that access to the tools is still a challenge in the UK and, and even in most of uh, most of Europe and the US, because a lot of them take quite a lot. Quite a lot of them are expensive and take quite a, a while to develop. So, the EEG, the electroactivity of the brain, really should be done by an EEG department, of which most hospitals don't have their own one. So, how can you deliver a test where you don't have a department in your own hospital to deliver it? And this is particularly. Uh, true of cardiac centers you know cardiac centers don't usually have a neurological 
centre sitting on top of them. They, they, they just don't. Now, maybe in time they might with stroke because stroke treatment is going to become like heart attack treatment where we're going to unblock arteries uh, with stents and, and balloons and things. And that's definitely coming. So you wonder whether there will be more overlap between the two. And actually, we may get much better at sort of brain injury support with this sort of merging of interventional treatments for both heart and brain and the tools to, to look at the outcomes would also be maybe similar too. There are, there are some crossovers. I mean, when I, uh, I, I saw a neurologist a few years ago and he, he had not come across many cardiac arrest survivors, but he said he would treat me as, as a stroke survivor. So I imagine there is a certain amount of uh, overlap in, yeah. in the similarities of what we experience. Yes, exactly right. And our neuropsychologist who works with us, Dr. Marco Mion, he has worked in stroke for the last five years and has then shown incredible interest and aptitude to come over, if you like, to looking after cardiac arrest patients. And you're right, the, the measures that you use, the tests that you use, and some of the abnormalities that you see or the challenges that you see can be similar. You know, if you're particularly young patients, so young stroke patients obviously have similar issues to young cardiac arrest patients. You know, young people who were very, very well suddenly become very unwell and have a large recuperation period. So there are similarities, even if the brain mechanism of injury is, is different. Talking about the young patients, uh, how many young patients do you see and do their um, rate of survival and recovery differ much from uh, the older generation? Yes. So uh, age in itself is a predictor of mortality, as you can imagine, because the older you are, the less robust everything is at surviving an insult. And so patients over the age of 80 do particularly badly at cardiac arrest. And you have to imagine as well, maybe when an 80-something-year-old patient who maybe has other uh, health issues wrong with them, rather than it being a cardiac arrest, is it not just the end of their life? You know, we're all going to die of something at some point in time. And if we've got lots of other health problems, maybe a cardiac arrest is just the way in which you're going to leave this earth. That, that's, that's inevitable for all of us at some point in time. I think clearly what is different is when patients who have nothing wrong with them in their 30s, 40s, 50s, just suddenly drop down dead with a cardiac arrest. And of course, that's, I would say, a very different kettle of fish. So I think that um, the average age of cardiac arrest patients in our institution is 62, uh, which is lower than the average age of our heart attack patients, which is about 67. Um, and of course, you can imagine that if you get a number of 30, 40 year olds come in through your door, which we do, then you can imagine it drives the mean age down considerably. Um, but as I say, I think that you know, we, we see a range of patients with a mean age of around 60 uh, with a, a variety of different causes. Uh, and cool. the cardiac centre is simply the best place to take those patients because we can decide what the problem is and how best to fix it or how best to treat it long term. How would you break down the, the, the causes of the cardiac arrest uh, patients in terms of what's caused their cardiac arrest? Yep, so the I would probably break them into three main groups. I think the first and most common, certainly that we see, and I think that most heart attack centres see, are those caused by heart attack. So sudden blockage of an artery. The heart muscle then doesn't like it at all, and goes into a rhythm called ventricular fibrillation where it just wobbles and doesn't pump effectively. People lose consciousness and drop to the floor and that needs to be recognised quickly. 
so that appropriate CPR and defibrillation can take place to make the patient better. Then they need to go to a cardiac centre to have the underlying heart blockage uh, blocked artery fixed promptly uh, and then of course receive all of the other care that we've talked about with regards to intensive care, neurological support and any other organ support that's required. So that's the biggest group in our, in our centre, it's around about 65%. If you then look, the next group uh, will be a group of patients who have something probably wrong with their heart muscle, a so-called cardiomyopathy. Very often the patients will not know they've got this. This will be the first time they've run into a problem. But generally the heart muscle, whether it be on an ultrasound or on an MRI scan, will be too thick in certain places or just not be right in certain places, which is often hereditary, can be other causes, but often hereditary. And those patients generally run into rhythm problems because of the abnormality of the heart muscle. We also know that there is then a group of patients who don't have a cause found, the so-called idiopathic patients. Uh, and I think those can be challenging from a perspective of that a lot of people can understand why their heart went wrong if you find a problem and tell them it was that bit there or it was that artery there or it was that thick muscle there or it was... When people just have this and there's nothing to show for it or no explanation apart from you're just unlucky and medicine, I think, hasn't got to that point where we can diagnose everything, whether it be on a gene, whether it be a protein, whether it be on an MRI or whatever. I think that can be a challenge. So I would put the idiopathic patients under the cardiomyopathies and maybe we just haven't understood that cardiomyopathy well enough yet with the tools that we have. And then finally, there's the cardiac arrests which are caused by other things, the so-called, we call them pulseless electrical activity, or PEA. And they can be caused by sepsis, by PE, by a pulmonary embolus, a clots in the lung. They can be caused by lots of other things, maybe the potassium being really high in, in a renal patient. So lots and lots of other things which are contributing to why someone's had a cardiac arrest. So, not a heart attack, not a heart muscle problem or a heart problem, but something else. And they, we, that's again why we have to have our wits about us at the very point of patients entering our hospital to make sure that we identify those patients too and treat if it is the potassium or treat if it is you know, a really low blood count or they're bleeding into their stomach and they've bled so much that they lose an output. You know, all these things are really important for us to have our broad clinical hat on if that makes sense, to try and ensure that we're not missing something obvious that could cause someone to be very unwell. So is, is there a, a protocol that you follow if someone comes in and it's not an obvious heart attack or not an obvious cause? Uh, presumably you go down checking potassium and yeah. other things and what about things like Brugada and uh, Wolf yep. Parkinson, White Syndrome, that sort so of thing. So I think we, we definitely do have a sort of algo rhythm, but you've got to remember every cardiac arrest patient will be met by a consultant cardiologist who has taken probably 10 or 12 or 15 years to train, who is an experienced, by definition, doctor. So that, again, is a really good reason as to why patients going to a cardiac centre are highly likely to do better than going to a local accident and emergency department where they might see... Yeah, a good doctor, but not someone who's a cardiologist who's an expert in heart rhythms and heart artery problems and the diagnosis thereof. And so I think that part of the value of going to the cardiac centre is being met by an ultimately experienced clinician who has seen this many times before because they all come to his or her centre. And that's why the treatment can be the best that it can possibly be. Yeah. Um, and the algorithm, to be fair, will be an algorithm that 
people, every consultant will have his own or her own different algorithm, but it will be variations on a, a very similar theme, I would say. So there's not a mandated no, thing from definitely. NICE or nope, nope, NHS? 100% not, no. So we, we have a lot of tools in our cath lab. So we have, we have of course, x-ray. We have the ability to take bloods. We have the ability to do blood tests immediately in our cath lab and have the answers within about a minute from potassium, magnesium, calcium, hemoglobin, renal function. So we've got, we've got some very novel things in our cath lab. We can do ultrasounds of the heart immediately. We can... The cath lab, which is a, a sterile sort of surgical like theatre, has an x-ray machine. So we have all the tools that can make the diagnosis and that can then deliver the treatment to all in one place with the experts on hand. And that's not just the consultant cardiologist, that's usually the registrar as well, that's a radiographer, that's a physiologist, that's two nurses to help us. So we've got an incredible team in the cath lab that is incredibly equipped to deliver the best possible care immediately, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. How many other centres are like that in the UK? So there's about 40-something, I think, 45, 50 cardiac centres in the UK that have the sort of facilities that, that we have in terms of, uh, you know, a 24 hours a day, seven days a week catheter lab. Uh, most of them will have uh, bypass surgeons on call, not on site, but on call, that if there's a problem that requires bypass, then you can usually get access to that within an hour or two, if necessary. Uh, and of course, the intensive care and all the other support services that we've described. The fact that you say that there's no sort of uh, algorithm, as you put it, that uh, all doctors will follow, is that why, or does it follow on from that, that there is no similar pathway once people have been discharged, that uh, no one has thought about this yet? Yeah, perhaps? I, think, I, th I think there's an element to that. I think part of it is, I get criticised for calling it ownership, but I still think it's probably the best word. If you get met by a pre-hospital consultant, you then maybe go to A&E, you then go to the cardiac centre into a cardiac cath lab and see an interventional consultant. You then need a defibrillator by an electrophysiological consultant. You then maybe need a bit of rehab, you then go back to a district general hospital, see a different general cardiologist. None of them really own you enough to have the continuity of care, to know you from the very start to the very end to deliver sort of seamless care. And I think that part of the problem is, is that we're a victim of our own super specialization. So actually what you do need is a cardiac arrest specialist at the end who has an interest in cardiac arrest patients to follow you up. That's what you need. You need a care team, a cardiac arrest recovery team. And I think that's really, really important that and it doesn't matter who that person is. It could be a general practitioner trained in the the, the things that cardiac arrest survivors need to recover from. It could be a consultant cardiologist, it could be a neuropsychologist, it could be a cardiac rehab nurse, it can be an intensive care follow-up nurse. I don't mind. It needs to be someone who understands the challenges, can signpost what the problems are and can deal with and act upon locally what services there are to support that patient and family. I think that's, that is the way forward. So what sort of training would you think they would need? Well, I think that there will be a generic uh, level of, of training already in place. Be that person from any of those backgrounds would have already been trained in general practice, in rehab nursing, in ITU nursing, in neuropsychology, in cardiology. It doesn't matter, whatever. Because I think that all of them have the capabilities of following these patients up, uh, but understanding the challenges. Um, and I think that the way in which I would envisage that they would uh, be supported is that 
Firstly, you can't be just seeing patients following their cardiac arrest. And I think that's inherent. If you follow up like we did 75 over an 18 month period, you will be by definition become experienced and understand the challenges they go through. And you'll get good at signposting towards particular areas that will help to support patients, be they counselors, be they psychologists, be they psychiatrists, be them whatever they need, social workers for, for, you know, for support financially or whatever. We don't want everybody to have to do that. There's no point in reinventing a wheel. So when we've got a, a group of a team that's already been there and worn the t-shirt, you may as well try and show other healthcare professionals what that template looks like. And so really it's about being very open and generic about what problems the patient are facing. And just ask a very open, simple questions about how are they coping? Because that's actually the most important thing. It's not so much, are your tablets all right? Are you getting chest pain? Are you breathless? Can you walk up the stairs? Those are important components to a recovery. But actually, if the patient can't remember one thing to the next, has lost their job, has got the bailiffs on the door, uh, you know, and maybe husband or wife has left because of all, it's all just got too much. That's what that patient needs to have support in dealing with, not the fact if he's got chest pain or breathlessness, which is an almost secondary issue, I would say. So the fact is you need to deal with all of these things, but to just deal with one little bit of it is unhelpful. And I think we need a team approach to deal with all of the challenges that cardiac arrest patients uh, have uh, so that we can deliver a much more, call it holistic, call it whatever you want, but a much more generalised view of support for cardiac arrest patients. Now, don't get me wrong, some patients won't need that much. Some people recover really, really well and are just incredible. And I don't quite understand sometimes how patients can have been through so much and yet just like water off a duck back and just get on with it. I think sometimes they run into problems later on down the line when it maybe sinks in a bit more. Uh, and some people understandably really struggle. And that's what we've got to try and understand. What are the signals? What are the, why do some people really struggle? And how can we help and intervene early? Because I think what we appreciate now is that early intervention into most things, be they psychological, be they whatever, early intervention is usually good intervention, but we've got to deliver the right therapies and, and support to intervene on these problems early on to prevent much more challenging consequences further down the line. So how do you see us moving forward for helping cardiac arrest survivors once they've been discharged? So my personal view is that I think we need a cardiac arrest recovery team in every uh, hospital which accepts patients with cardiac arrest uh, to their institution. Because if you're seeing these patients in your institution, you have to have I think a mechanism of following them up, identifying problems and dealing with both the cardiac problems, but also the neuropsychological problems and identifying those and dealing with those. Uh, I think that the team can be a single person in certain areas that maybe don't have huge resource. And I think that single person could be, uh, say, a rehabilitation nurse, uh, it could be a GP, it could be an intensive care follow-up nurse, it could be a cardiologist. I think it doesn't really matter, but it has to be someone who understands and wants to be involved in following up patients following cardiac arrest and in immersing themselves in what the challenges of cardiac arrest patients are and finding local solutions to help them out, be they counsellors, be they uh, psychiatrists, psychologists, uh, neuro rehab institutions. Uh, and signposting and educating patients in this area. 
So I'm very keen to promote this model. I think the Essex Cardiac Centre has got a very advanced model now with all of those specialist staff in post, a rehabilitation nurse, an intensive care follow-up nurse, a cardiologist, a neuropsychologist, a psychiatrist, and we all work as one team. And I think that is a fantastic uh, resource to have, but I'm completely accepting that that is not necessarily possible in every cardiac centre or centre that sees cardiac arrest survivors because much of what we do has actually been funded by uh, research and charitable funds, uh, potentially from both the university and from SADS UK. And so, you know, we are trying to deliver the best possible solutions, but I accept that not all of that can be necessarily replicated across the whole of the UK. You know, we have, uh, we have to ha keep an eye on the budget. We have to show data to support that what we're doing is good for patients and we're still in the process of doing that because we can't just you know the nhs doesn't have the financial capacity just to keep throwing money at everything regardless of whether it's good bad or indifferent you have to show that what you're trying to deliver makes a benefit to patients and their families and again that's part of our next tranche of work is is developing that so that we can take a care team model to other hospitals and educate other uh, healthcare professionals in how to follow up robustly cardiac arrest survivors and families uh, but we have to collect data to show the value of it and that's really really important moving forward thank you very much tom I think it's been an incredible um, hour of um, your story and cardiac arrest and uh, where we're going and hopefully where we can go in the future. So thank you very much for your time and hopefully I'll have you back on the show again soon. My pleasure.